Beautiful things are fragile. At home, we have only black moths. Formidable creatures, to be sure, but they lack beauty. They thrive on the dark and the cold. What do they feed on? Butterflies, I'm afraid. Welcome to The Grand Gesture, a movie podcast where we take a look at romantic tropes in film from the perspective of two very different hosts. I am your coastal elite, Dave, and I will be joined in this episode by our country bumpkin, Mike, as well as our guest, Anya Novak, and you'll hear more about her when she shows up at the beginning of this episode. And I, of course, am a huge fan of the director of the film we're covering today. We're taking a look at Crimson Peak, directed, of course, by Guillermo del Toro. So I'm definitely looking forward to the chat we're about to have, and I hope you stick around and listen to that conversation. All right, so to talk about Crimson Peak this week, our guest is Anya Novak. Anya, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. Why don't you tell people about your excellent film writing uh, that's out there on, on many different websites and maybe a centralized place where they could check it out? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I get around a little bit. I am a freelance genre writer, and I run a video nasties column over at the Daily Grindhouse. Um, my work has been seen everywhere from Birth Movies Death to F This Movie to Bloomhouse and more. Um, I love talking about genre films. I'll, I'll talk about horror as long as people let me do it, basically. And I'm always looking to talk more for new outlets. So my website is AnyaWrites.com. That's A-N-Y-A Writes.com. And you can follow my shenanigans over at Bookish Plinko on Twitter. Nice. Is there a particular uh, review or piece you have up that you think is like most representative of your work, something you'd point people towards if they're just reading you for the first time? <laughs> the, the one I would usually point people towards is my defense of Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. <laughs> but that's lost me a lot of followers. So I'll probably <laughs> say uh, my review of it, which was actually through the eyes of my nine-year-old son when I took him to see it for his first horror movie in the theater uh, just a few weeks ago. Awesome. Fantastic. I actually just watched Halloween 6 on your recommendation. It was it was actually pretty damn good. So I'm glad I sat Wasn't through it. Wasn't it? It was. It was. I had to sit, sit through a lot of sequels, but but we finally got to got to the good one there. So so thank you for that. You're welcome. All right. So now we're going to jump into Crimson Peak. So Crimson Peak is certainly a movie that started arguments over genre, which is Anya's specialty, as she mentioned, uh, given that it was marketed as a standard horror film upon release. So we decided to muddy the waters even further by featuring it on a, a romantic comedy podcast. But I think Guillermo del Toro would be pleased as he tends to term this a gothic romance. Uh, so let's jump to the meet cute. So in our meet cute, we are first introduced to an aspiring novelist, Edith Cushing, played by Mia Wasikowska. And she's clearly set up as a woman ahead of her time, struggling within the constraints of her society. But soon she meets Thomas Sharp, played by Tom Hiddleston, who compliments her writing without even knowing it was hers. Good morning, miss. Forgive the interruption. I have an appointment with Mr. Carter Everett Cushing. Goodness, with the great man himself. I'm afraid so. Sir Thomas Sharp, baronet. He'll be here shortly. Thank you. I'm sorry, I don't mean to pry, but uh, this is a piece of fiction, is it not? Yes. Who are you transcribing this for? It's to be sent to New York tomorrow, to the Atlantic Monthly. Well, whoever wrote it, it's, um... 
Rather good, don't you think? Really? It certainly captured my attention. Also later, he sneaks past her father to convince her to attend a dance. So is this first meeting enough to root for these two, or do we need the waltz as well? Uh, we'll, we'll swing it to Anya first. What did you think upon first meeting these two characters? Are they enough to root for? Uh, when individually they're enough to root for, but as far as, as them being together, I didn't think there was really enough chemistry there until the waltz. The waltz was what, was what brought it full circle for me and really got me to kind of root for them as a unit. Okay. What about you, Mike? Was, was that, was that first meeting enough? No, no, not at all. Which I I don't know. Am I supposed to root for them? I don't know. In the context of this being a scary movie, uh, am I rooting for them to get together because I think that bad things will happen to them <laughs> so maybe in that regard yes uh i will say that the the waltz probably does it i feel like him complimenting her on her writing is a little creepy right off the bat like because I, I don't know i'm like wait did he already know that like did he have that he plan? read one like sentence and it's like yeah, yeah this is great <laughs> um I, the scene uh, one thing that we've skipped over like when he gets past her and meets the dad and then is i guess shamed publicly not only for his soft hands like rich (laughs) i started as a steelworker raising buildings before i could own them my hands feeling rough the reflection of who i am now you sir when i shook your hand you've got the softest hands i've ever felt In America, we bank on effort, not privilege. That is how we built this country. (laughs) Yeah, the soft hands in front of these rich old white dudes who I was was really questioning how many of them, like I wanted a scene where all of them sort of look at their hands and like, oh gee, like. (laughs) Don't shake hands with this guy. (laughs) Yeah, um, I I do like that moment where uh, he has a moment of embarrassment um, in front of Edith and sort of looks back, um, which I, yet again, I'm assuming is all part of like the showmanship of the guy. But I think there's an element of truth there where he genuinely does not like her seeing him somewhat begging and groveling in front of her, mm-hmm. her father. So I don't know. I'm sort of mixed on whether or not I'm supposed to root for them or not, but there is one, uh, love pair that I'm rooting for. And there's oh, one, uh, <laughs> character, one actress that I always root for all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Mike will always move to the Chastain at any at any opportunity, which is totally uh-huh. understandable. Um, I think I think when I first watched the movie, like I am, you know, when it comes to Guillermo del Toro, like I'm pretty much already in the bag anytime I walk into the theater and he's the director, like I am ready to like it. So I think the first time I watched it, like that that moment between them where he, you know, he compliments her writing, especially after the setup where she's kind of dealing with these you know, really petty women, you know, saying she's going to be an old maid and die alone because she's a writer. Like, I'm already, like, rooting for her. Maybe not rooting for them, but definitely rooting for her from the very beginning. So that was enough for me. But on but as on subsequent watches, like, you know, you start noticing things like the amount of time he spends looking at this piece of fiction that, that she's written. And it's, you know, and some of that's just movie magic stuff. But he's he spends 10 seconds looking at it and is immediately like, this is great. I love this. Who wrote this? Oh, you wrote it? You're amazing. And it's like, okay, that's a little much. But I think I think all that gets solved, as Anya mentioned, with The Waltz. Like, The Waltz is a fantastic movie moment. It's beautifully filmed, and it shows him choosing her over 
over someone he was supposed to choose by societal standards. So I think that part really, really works. Uh, so we will move now to the breakup. So this is another problem we run into with this podcast a lot. There are two breakups uh, in this movie. In the case of Crimson oh, please. Peak... <laughs> I've had movies where there's like six couples. This is not crazy, stupid love. We're not doing breakups. that again. <laughs> please, give me, give it a break, Dave. This is easy stuff. So in the case of Crimson Peak, there is a false breakup and a much more lasting one. In the first, Edith's father pays off the sharps just as long as he breaks Edith's heart beyond repair in public. Your novel. I read the new chapters. I'll have them delivered in the morning. That's very good of you. Thank you. Would you still like to know my thoughts? If we must. It's absurdly sentimental. The aches that you describe with such earnestness. The pain. The loss. You clearly haven't lived at all. In fact, you only seem to know what other writers tell you. That's enough! You insist on describing the torments of love when you clearly know nothing about them. I'm not done yet! What do you dream of? A kind man? A pure soul to be redeemed? A wounded bird you can nourish? Perfection. Perfection has no place in love, Edith. I advise you to return to your ghosts and fancies. The sooner the better. You know precious little of the human heart. Or love. Or the pain that comes with it. You're nothing but a spoiled child. And the second and final breakup occurs when Edith, Edith discovers Thomas in a compromising position with his own sister, Lucille, played by, as Mike mentioned, Jessica Chastain. Uh, so in which of these breakups do we feel the worst for Edith? Like, does that fake breakup work? Uh, Anya, what did you think? I thought the fake breakup was heartbreaking. It was brutal. And he, even though there was there was definitely like pain in, in Sir Thomas Sharp's voice uh, when he when he was saying what he said, there was still a level of viciousness to it to it that that um, that Edith didn't know about. You know, she didn't know what what, he, what was going on. She didn't know that her father put him up to it. Mm-hmm. But he seemed especially zealous to kind of, you know, really stick it to and twist the knife there. And even the slap that she gives him doesn't even make up for it. It's just, it's just her little tantrum running away. So that for me, that scene was especially heartbreaking just because I've been humiliated like that in front of people at not, not at a party, but I have personally had like a, an experience kind of similar to that. Not, not in Crimson Peak, you know, not with some, (laughs) some would be husband or anything like that. <laughs> but something like that. Maybe it's my personal connection to to that kind of experience. But uh, yeah, I thought that was really, really heartbreaking and gut wrenching. So, is there well, a moment at well, all where you have trouble with with Edith simply running away from that moment? Like, did you want her to stand up and say something, or did you understand where she was coming from in that moment? I understood where she was coming from. She she has this very childish um, um, portrayal throughout the movie. And that was actually aided by an article I'd read about uh, the costuming in the movie and, and how she is dressed with these billowing sleeves That's and true. these these dresses that fit her, but they're just a little a little big on her. And they make her seem her frame seem smaller than it actually is to make her seem like more of a child. And so um, that fits in thematically with her that that she is. A little bit immature, um, not 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 in the way that we we use the word immature today, but she's just she's not quite ready for a lot of the adult themes that that Sir Thomas and Lucille are are ready to to bring down on her. 
Those are definitely some adult themes. Good lord. <laughs> uh, Mike, you were about to speak and I interrupted you to ask another question. So go ahead. Yeah, I'll just I'll just take both questions now Good. and I'll Do ask it. some more of myself. Good. I'll just keep the mic the entire time. Um, <laughs> you asked which one sort of was more effective. I mean, it, I think the probably the obvious answer would be to to lean more towards the second one because we're talking about like sort of life and death matters at that point. <laughs> and she gets it's, pushed it's, off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a matter of survival. But they, they both do share something in common, which is uh, a third party, an outside participant in her love life. Uh, in the former, it is her father trying to, what he thinks is in uh, the best interest, and I think probably the audience assumes it's in her best interest that these two, at that point, just this con artist couple have come to town. They're trying to take advantage of her, take advantage of her family. And so he is uh, interceding on her part. And to do so uh, participates in her being publicly shamed and embarrassed and crushed. Good parenting. The dad, <laughs> the dad takes a little, probably a little too much uh pleasure in uh still being controlling of his his daughter because they're both i assume grieving the loss of his wife her mother still um but yeah the second one of course it's it's the chastain i mean she's a <laughs> she's a physical participant she is you know, a physical she, participant <laughs> she is not only <laughs> <laughs> which I'm glad dad was not involved in that in the first <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but you know like there's not enough about say, icky stuff going on in this movie you have to well, bring <laughs> may have helped the box office. We get even more icky on there with this film. Um you know, I was about to say that Lucille is the other woman, but really it's it's Edith. I mean, she's she's the one that is the sort of interloper here, at least from Lucille's perspective. Right. And is she's crushing her true love, this this weird relationship she has with her her brother. Um, so I don't know. I, I think, you know, in both events, she's sort of ignorant uh, about other people moving her around the, the chessboard uh, when she has legitimate feelings involved. Um, but I'm still going to go with the latter because, yeah, she gets pushed, pushed <laughs> off a uh, stairwell. Almost murdered. Yeah, that's that's a hell yeah, of a breakup. Murdered. Uh, I'll, I'll take my father embarrassing me in public over, you know, breaking my back or something. <laughs> I'm vanilla that way, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just a coward. I don't know. I think I found I found the first breakup really interesting because you're never really sure when that scene is going to end. Because as I was first watching it, you know, there's a scene at the table where he embarrasses her. And you're like, OK, that's plenty. Like, she is heartbroken. She's running off crying. And then Hiddleston kind of chases her out of the room to get in a couple more shots like oh yeah also your writing sucks like that thing you you really enjoy doing that thing we bonded over like that's also bad and i Anna, you mentioned like her you know being dressed up in this childish fashion and i think it's interesting that that's that's something else he attacks like you don't know anything about love and you are just a child and this is the way you're looking at it and i think it's you know as you you know after you've watched the movie once or twice it's really interesting for him to talk about, you know, you don't know what love is, considering what he's been doing, you know, with his sister this whole time. I mean, I think that's, you know, an interesting insult to hurl at her. And I think because the movie in a lot of ways is framed as a mystery, I think the first one is more effective as a breakup, whereas the second one is more mm -hmm. effective in the plot of the movie. We're like, oh, now we're finally figuring this out. And I kind of love that 
even right before she's pushed off, she still hasn't figured it out. Like, she can't fathom the idea that he would do this with his sister. So her attitude is like, oh, you've been lying. You're not actually siblings. And I love that Chastain's character, like, takes a moment to really relish that, that she has still fooled her, even to this level, right before she kind of pushes, you know, pushes her over this balcony. Well, if she wasn't so terrible at murdering people, she would have, <laughs> she would assume that was the final word. You know, that was she was getting. A, this is the time to tell her. Yeah, she was having her dead. bond moment. Like, let me yeah. just reveal everything. I'm sure she wouldn't have taken that time if she knew that she was going to fail so spectacularly at you know pushing this woman <laughs> off of a balcony. Well, I mean, but, she did that pretty you know, well. Just she's got a strong back. I mean, you win some, you lose some. You know, there's time for. <laughs> more conversation about this uh, incestuous relationship. Well, I mean, it's also interesting because, you know, at this point in the movie, we've set up that, you know, these awful things are happening. And I think the movie wants you at some level to still root for the couple we've been talking about more, at least the way, you know, the movie kind of wraps up. So do you think, do you think the movie accomplishes that? Like, is it, because even right before she's pushed off, like you see, uh, that Thomas really does feel a lot of guilt about what's going on, even if he's going to let it happen. So, Anya, as you're watching this, like, are you are you totally removed from Thomas at that point, or do you still feel something for him? Uh, it's it's a little complicated because I feel like he, um, in regards to his relationship with Lucille, she seems to be more of the active antagonistic force between the two, and he seems more weak than than. Uh, uh, insidious. Right. He seems to more or less be going along with what she's telling him to do. Um, but he is still an asshole. And so <laughs> he's, he's still, you know, he's still a total jackass to Edith. He treats her very poorly. He knows what's going on. He's completely cognizant of the damage he's doing to her and to all the other women that they've, they victimized over the years because there are many apparently. <laughs> and so um, while I, I, I love Hiddleston's baby blue eyes. Um, I feel like, yeah, uh, he's still he's still a bad guy, and I'm aware that I'm kind of supposed to be rooting for him in the way that you root for the the anti villain of a of a gothic romance. Right. But um, yeah, I would compare him more to someone like uh, like Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. You know, someone mm-hmm. who is definitely not the nicest dude you know you've ever met, but. In the, for the sake of this story, we're going to go ahead and root for him for a little bit just because there's someone far worse that needs to be taken care of right now. Sure. It's interesting you bring up all these other women that he's done this to before. So I find myself wondering, did he feel bad about this before or is this is this relationship with Edith special? So I know, what, do, what do you think? Is this is this is he actually in love with her or is this kind of a game he's played before? I, th- I think he's actually in love with her. And this is the first person that he's actually kind of seen as a human being. You know, he's he, this is one of the first victims that he actually felt something for. I don't even know if it's love. Well, it, it might be love considering the grand gesture that he does later on. But I, I don't think that um, I don't know how to word it tactically. Um, he 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 loves her. I'll say he loves her. <laughs> I love how you argued with yourself through that. You you got you got. That. I know. Good. I have to I have to work work it through my head. What about you, Mike? Uh, let's see. I I need to match Anya's uh, literary references. So <laughs> when I when I see 
Thomas Sharp. I was reminded of uh, George Carlin's great performance in Dogma <laughs> as the Cardinal, <laughs> where, where he says mistakes were made. <laughs> you win. You win. Well done. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I had not really considered before uh, if his feelings were uh, legitimate for Edith in any particular way. I, I think he probably at certain points felt shame, felt bad mm-hmm. for the other woman. But I would think that this one is more true because the way he portrays his character, I feel like at this point he's probably gotten used to their cons, like what mm-hmm. they're doing to these women. And so it should get easier for him. And the fact that it hasn't, you know, leads you to think there is something more to this relationship with her. And maybe all it took was the the one snowbound night which genuinely got out of the house for once yeah i mean jessica chastain sells that moment as far as this is an outlier this is something that has not happened before so he's probably not been given any sort of room to have any relationships nor should he given their plans for these these women right um and so this this is starting to become something else um he also you know when he's talking with lucille at the end he he has an idea that this will stop at some point and I don't, Lucille, it seems like this is, she's accepted this is who we are. You know, right. we're venomous snakes. And he's thinking it is for some sort of good that if, you know, if he can just get this invention to work, if he can just mm-hmm. establish themselves financially, they can put all that murdering business down and just <laughs> get back to the hot. One last sex. score is that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. as you do. Yeah. <laughs> like you yeah. Do. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I think Thomas's love for Edith, I think, I think he does really care about her. I think. I don't think he does at the beginning, but I think he kind of grows to love her. But I think all of that is all of that is put across because of Lucille's reactions. I, I don't think it necessarily comes across uh, through Tom Hiddleston, but like she has I think she has a line later in the movie, like you promised you wouldn't fall in love with anyone. You know, and he kind of admits like, oh, sorry, <laughs> made a mistake, fell, fell in love with this girl. I wasn't I didn't set out to do this, but that's where we are now. And I think. I think it's interesting that that all happens in a lot of ways because they do leave Crimson Peak. They're not trapped in this, you know, ghost house and this, you know, this ghost incest house where everything awful happens. They actually spend a night Better together title. outside <laughs> ghost incest house. I like it. Yeah, that's it's more hire me. Del Toro. Sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> kind of takes away the twist a little bit, but, you know, that's OK. Uh, but yeah, I do, I do think he really does care about her. And I think. I think that's the reason the movie works. I think if you don't believe him, I think the ending of the film rings really hollow. Um, so I'm glad I believed Tom Hiddleston, but I think it's more because of Jessica Chastain's performance than really anyone else in the film. You're stealing my lines. Yeah. I'm supposed to say that. I know, sorry. <laughs> All right. So now we move to the grand gesture and, you know, in movies like this, there's there can be lots of discussions about what the grand gesture is. So if you don't like either of my grand gestures, feel free to bring up your own. But I have I have two. Uh, I feel like we have some choices here. We could say that after the fake breakup, Thomas marrying Edith is a grand gesture of sorts, though his ten- his intentions aren't exactly pure. But we could also look at Thomas's death and the lead up to it as its own grand gesture. He both betrays his sister by letting Dr. Allen, played by the great Charlie Hunnam, survive and appears in a strange sort of support in ghost form in this final fight between Edith and Lucille. So Anya, are his grand gestures enough and is he forgiven by the close of the film? 
I think, uh, yes, eventually they are enough. And yes, he's forgiven by the close of the film. Um, that first one about marrying her, eh, there were some ulterior motives there. So I don't think that one really Maybe. counts for me. <laughs> but um, when he uh, he stabs, uh, uh, what's his name, Alan, mm-hmm. he gives a non-fatal stab wound on purpose to Alan before hiding him, knowing how much Edith cares about him and knowing how much he cares about Edith. And I think that in itself is a small grand small grand gesture. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing. A small gesture. <laughs> we'll call that a one a small so gesture. A not-so-grand gesture? Yes. Yeah, a non-fatal stab wound would be a small gesture <laughs> in the context of this particular film. Otherwise, it would be a very grand gesture in real life. But um, by the end of the film, his murder, uh, even though he's the passive agent in it, that in itself is also a grand gesture. He he literally died for her and he died trying to protect her, maybe not physically, but in spirit, in spirit, he did. He He knew that. Well, he had to have known that Lucille was going to do that shit. She's crazy. She's nuts. He knew she was nuts. He slept with crazy. That's what he did. That's what happens. But that's what happens. Worth it. Totally worth it. <laughs> worth <Yep>. it. <laughs> uh, and then that final gesture of, of aiding Edith in, in killing Lucille with that shovel, which was a great moment, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike's that, least that favorite That was a small moment. gesture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was so good. The sound. Who was, who was the sound technician on that? that they had that, some fun. That That's... noise. <laughs> that shovel hitting nose bone. That was that was good stuff. Also a good title. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that was its own uh, really good um, gesture. So I think the biggest gesture was was allowing Lucille to kill. I mean, nobody allows anybody to kill them, but you know, being killed by Lucille was his grand gesture. His grandest. Jester? I don't know. I've had a lot of wine. <laughs> We're making up words here. It's, it's good enough I'm, for me. Uh, I'm going to say his grand gesture uh, is all for his true love of Lucille, oh, his Jesus. sister. Here we go. Okay, hear me out. Um, I'm ready. <laughs> so, as Anya just said, uh, he had to have known or suspect what Lucille's response would be. So, you know, he's got her somewhat convinced that maybe this has gone too far. Maybe they should, they should leave. And he, he, he makes the, you know, stupid decision to throw in like all of us, you know, the three of us can be one happy family, which is kind of, uh, it makes me buy into the, the Edith sort of relationship. Cause he's also Dave, as you said, just as, just as naive, maybe just as limited in his experience when it comes to love on how, people are going to respond to these type of things. And so this is a bridge too far for Lucille that she's going to be somehow involved with this Edith and her life still. And I think most people would agree that things have gone too far at this point yeah. where they're not going to be. There's no going back. Not an episode of, <laughs> this is not friends. They're not going to switch relationships and live across <laughs> the, uh, the hall from each other and crimson peak. Uh, but I, I believe, you know, ultimately the gesture is, you know, he becomes a ghost because his sister murders him uh, and then when he revisits her, not only does it save Edith, but it gives Lucille some sort of closure. Like, you know, that mm-hmm. she just stops. She stops fighting because, you know, that's all she cares about is her brother in a very twisted way. Mm-hmm. And, and the closing shot is her playing piano at Crimson Peak. Like they remain there together for presumably eternity in the ghost incest house. So until it's six. Damn, what a what a what a grand gesture, Dave. I mean, my God, <laughs> get stabbed in the face, become a. 
pretty, you know, white snowy ghost. And then uh, your sister plays piano all day and you have ghost incest sex. <laughs> Not bad. Works out for all involved. Everybody wins. Edith gets to go off and be an author. Well, you know. <laughs> I mean, Edith still lost her dad. And, uh, you know, Dr. Allen got stabbed a few times. I hope he survives. Like well, that. if he was a good doctor and told him to stab him in the right place, then it'll be fine. We're going to test his education a little bit. I mean, there's also the travel out of Crimson Peak. I don't know how uh, speedy that would be. But yeah, for the most part, everything works out just fine. This is just like you've got mail. It works out yeah, perfectly clean. everybody wins. You've got mail. <laughs> that hell of... should be the hook for this episode. We ju- we compared Crimson Peak to You've Got Mail. Mike will compare Tune anything to You've Got Mail. This is, this is what you don't get about Mike. Any movie would be like, not as good as You've Got Mail. I can't can't wait for it to be featured on the show. It's going to be like the Super Bowl edition of our show. I'm, I'm going to do so much research, which means I will do some research. Yes, and, something uh, beyond the IMDb mind. page. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Doctor Who? Alan. Yes, that's it. Yes. That's my research. Because <laughs> I skimmed the page. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I think the grand gesture really works. I think it's – I think the only way that he can have a grand gesture that works in this movie is he has to give his life. I don't think there's a, a single way he could survive this movie and have us still be on his side by the end. And I think there's a really, you know, sweet moment where after his death, Edith kind of touches his face and he kind of disappears into the mist. And I think you get the sense that she has forgiven him despite everything that she that she has gone through here. Like, I think she still does care about him. And that relationship kind of, you know, comes full circle and really strangely works. And I think with a lesser director and a lesser script, like this would be comical. This would be ridiculous. But I do think the grand gesture really does work. I think what I'm struggling with here is we always try and kind of tie these into, you know, how is this coming to your life? What, you know, would you do this grand gesture? And it's, come it's, on, Dave. It's so over the top that it's like, uh, I don't know, would you get stabbed in the face for the woman you love? Like, where do we go from here, Mike? These stories are a dime a dozen. I don't know. You're just not living a. <laughs> a I'm not living my full... best life. That's. <laughs> love life there. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I don't know how to spin this. I guess you'd have to remove all the violence, all of that particular horror. Um, yep. Maybe, maybe you know, just it, it, there is something to uh, the Thomas character having to reveal who he is finally to Edith. Mm-hmm. And in that way, he does have to fully accept every bad thing he's done. Because right. for the most part, he does sort of keep that contained and just look at it from like the business sense. So I guess you could spin that as far as like, you know, using a relationship to be more honest with yourself. Uh, maybe. I don't right. know. Dave. Do, yeah. Do I, I'm always the one that jumps on this grenade and you're you like, are. you're like, all right, we've run out of time. I'm not going to speak <laughs> about my personal life. So, so I'll hand so, it to you. So that actually creates kind of an interesting question. Do you think a healthy relationship is one where you are? completely honest about a hundred percent of your past present and future is it something that you should strive for or is it fair to have your own private life within that relationship um i'm gonna say on the record no probably not every (laughs) uh i probably mentioned hot incest sex too much now that that is probably something you keep to yourself uh but you know what uh, thomas sharp is doing here 
like his lies directly affect and are harming Edith. Right. So yeah, they're not just his stories. That this is affecting her life directly by poisoning her. So yes, there are definitely in his case things that you probably should let her know about. Right. <laughs> yeah, I would say that if if my past was relevant to my my suitor's future in that sense, yeah, he probably deserves to get a heads up about that. But for the most part, I, I like the idea of, of having a kind of a, a separate private life before, not necessarily separate, but a, a private life before marriage and, and kind of a shared one after. Yeah. I'm just going to say our guest is right. Cause uh, we'd like to have Ida back. So. <laughs> God damn it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> right no, I know. I think, <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, I think it's actually really, really important if you're in a relationship to be able to, have your own identity and not have everything be laid out on the table. Like, I, I don't think, I don't think because you're in a relationship with someone, you have a right to know their autobiography. I, I think you have a right to know what affects you. And I think obviously Mike, you're right here that, you know, his past certainly is affecting uh, Edith's present and future. If she's going to have a future given the situation she's in. So I think he does owe her that. And I think if he doesn't come clean by the end of this movie, then I think we walk away thinking Thomas is nothing but, you know, nothing but a terrible person and someone we should not ever trust and not ever forgive. But I think because he does come clean and make that sacrifice that we do end up caring about Thomas by the end of the yeah, and he gets to, he makes for a pretty ghost. He's like he you know, it's like Star Wars. He gets he gets the good Jedi form at the end. You know, he's not he's not a scary ghost by any means. But true. sure, you know, if this was Doctor Allen again, when he reveals that he's interested in ghost photography as a hobby, <laughs> I'm not gonna hold that against him if he kept that to himself. Like you know, yeah, his like closet where he keeps all of his Dungeons and Dragons books. That's fine. If he's withholding <laughs> that particular hobby. <laughs> But yeah, uh, Thomas Sharp has stuff that he probably needs to 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 let uh, Edith know about. Yeah, absolutely. All right, and uh, you have things to, you need to let our listeners know about, Dave. Uh, I swear we're on a streak now where they they know you less somehow as we've done this podcast. So. <laughs> I'm trying to be a mystery. That's that's. What do I have to tell them? What <laughs> you you sound like you have, some have sort to of tune into our "You've Got Mail" episode yeah, where all of your dirty secrets. That's will where come everything out. comes out. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, one more time, Anya. Why don't you let people know uh, where they can contact you online? Uh, you can find my work at AnyaWrites.com. That's A-N-Y-A Writes.com. And you can follow my shenanigans over at Bookish Plinko on Twitter. That's Bookish, as in someone who reads a lot, and Plinko, as in the Price is Right game. And whether or not, like Anya, you prefer to be drinking heavily when you talk to or listen to Dave and Mike on The Grand Gesture, we implore you to go and follow us on all kinds of social media at Grand Gesture Pod. And of course, if you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We would definitely really appreciate it. So uh, speaking of things that will lead one to drink, there's a lot of talk online about Star Wars The Last Jedi. And of course... You know, we just want to jump onto those hashtags. So we're going to take a look at the director of that film, Ryan Johnson, one of his previous films. We're going to take a look at the science fiction, maybe new classic, Looper. So if you want to try to find the romance in a science fiction movie about time travel and Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Emily Blunt and for some unknown reason, Bruce Willis, 
then you should absolutely join us for our next episode. 